Morning. Test. Okay, there it is. Okay, here it is. Blessed are the four. For it starts with an R. Righteousness sake for Okay, blessed are the for for theirs is Okay. How many of us how many of you have been persecuted? Okay, guys, it could have happened this morning. Why are you watching ESPN again? You already know the scores. You have ten minutes to get ready for church. And wear the blue shirt. (laughs) For righteousness sake. Righteousness. And I don't mean like you're sitting in some bar at the end of the Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven. And you see, breathe. Oh man. That was totally righteous. <laughs> How many of you have received the kingdom of God? Okay. All right, we're done here. We can go. <laughs> but I have 30 minutes to fill, so we're going to continue with this. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. And receiving the kingdom was a literal reality in the first century. It was real for Jesus. It was real for the apostles. It was real for those who came in the first three centuries of the persecution under the Roman Empire. It was true of some Jews afterwards. It was more recently true of Christian missionaries. It's like the story of the cannibal who passed the missionary in the woods. Okay, you'll have to think of that one. For some residents in communist countries and occasionally Christians at the hands of other Christians. Because of the operative word, for righteousness sake, we can't include the millions or the hundreds of thousands that died in the Crusades or as a result of colonialism, the persecution and eradication of the Native Americans and Africans under the colonial period. They didn't die for righteousness' sake. They were just slaughtered. But even if we look at all of the people that have been Christians since the time of Christ, there are almost 3.8 billion of us right now on the earth. To those who this this scripture would apply in reality and literally, we could probably only count maybe 1% of everyone that calls themselves a Christian that has been on earth since the time of Christ. But obviously he included this scripture. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there has to be some application, some wider historical audience to whom it would apply. But first we need to talk about what this doesn't mean. Um, And this is the way it's been directed towards us in church since we were small. And it is that if you are not being persecuted, then you are not righteous. 
If you're not being persecuted, then you're not living the life of Christ. If you're not being persecuted, then your little light is not shining. Uh, This was, at first, a Roman Catholic guilt trip. Those of you that are Catholic, you can identify with that. Um, And then the Protestants grabbed a hold of it. And if we were not persecuted, we were not living a righteous life. If drivers were not honking at us because of our love Jesus or go to hell bumper sticker, then we are not living our faith. I don't know, maybe that isn't persecution at all. Maybe you should just stop driving 15 in a 45 zone. If at school, if kids aren't calling you Bible thumpers because you're trying to convert them at lunch, instead they just want to forget their chemistry exam and eat their mystery meat. But if you're not converting them, you're not loving God. If we're not being talked about at the office because we want to baptize people in the water cooler, Or we're not being beaten up behind the bleachers because we want to convince everybody to segregate the lesbians at lunch. Then our light is not shining. And this point of view has dawned some jewelry experiments. I saw about a seven pound gold cross on Kim Kardashian. It screamed, look at me, I am a Christian Don't persecute me because I'm stupid. Persecute me because I love like, uh, I think like I love uh, like uh, God. If you have to wear a seven pound gold cross or use the used car salesman technique on your fellow workers or drive around with a bumper sticker like, my Jesus fish ate your dinosaur or Religion is a choice. An AR-15 isn't a right. Or, if you're too stupid for science, try religion. Right. I don't get that one either. All right. You deserve persecution. But it won't get you to the kingdom. So we need to dispel the guilt trip. Just because you walk around with a fluorescent, glow-in-the-dark, King James underlined family Bible strapped to your back, and people make fun of you, that does not mean you are righteous. You are just weird. So we need to define the terms. Persecution. I used to think that I was persecuted. So... When my sisters waited until I was coming home from school and doused my little teddy bear in lighter fluid and torched him in the driveway, I thought I was persecuted. And it really didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was 17 (laughs) and needed to stop sleeping with a teddy bear. Or, when I walked across the gym floor to ask Diane Radke to dance, and she said, 
No. I wasn't really persecuted. It was just I was two grades below her and a head smaller, and I hadn't uh, discovered deodorant. Or when the coach said, read, sit on the bus, and think about it till halftime. I thought I was persecuted, and it really didn't have anything to do with the two 15-yard penalties back-to-back that took us from the three-yard line to the 33. Or my own wife. Was it really wrong to wear my bathrobe and pajamas and slippers to Walgreens to get a toilet plunger? It was five o'clock in the morning. No one would have seen me. But there is real persecution. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. Not only that, count yourself blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into trouble like that. Matthew 26. The high priests tried to cook up charges against Jesus, and even though they made false accusations, nothing was believable. They were spitting in his face and banging him around. They plaited a crown from a thorn bush, spit on him, and beat him with a club, and Pilate had him scourged. They mocked him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. After Jesus' death, Stephen, an early convert, was called on to testify about Jesus and the Messiah. The account in Acts 7 ends as Stephen continues to speak, but yelling and hissing as the mob drowned him out, and they finally dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks until he died. In our last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Catholic priest spoke out against Hitler and his intent of evil. When he was imprisoned in 1932 for social anti-social propaganda, he joined about 20% of the inmates in the concentration camps who were clergymen speaking out against Hitler. Finally, a month before the war's end, he was executed, and the prison doctor wrote, at the place of execution, Bonhoeffer said a short prayer and climbed the steps to the gallows as if he was going home for dinner. I hardly ever saw anyone die so entirely submissive to God's will. Jesus, Stephen, Bonhoeffer, they suffered persecution for their righteousness. But more often, what we view as persecution is not really persecution but sharpening and correction and honing. So I want you to picture yourself as a dog. Now choose a real dog, not like a chihuahua or something like that. Okay? You are a dog. Okay? Are you obedient? Are you housebroken? Are you mannerly? Will you bite the kids? Would you chase the mailman? Would any of us allow a wolf to be in our house and play with the kids? Dogs need to be trained 
They need to be tamed. They need to fulfill their purpose. And life does this to us. It housebreaks us. God does this to us. If our perfection is necessary so that we might do the will of the Father and fulfill our own purpose, then he cannot leave us as wolves. God uses a variety of methods to to shape us, to housebreak us. Sometimes we are polished by the laws of nature. I saw a newscast once where this woman, it was a tornado thing had gone through and her house had been spared. And she said, God blessed me. And the irony of that is she was standing right in front of a church that had been swept away. Sometimes it is a blessing. Sometimes it is devastation. God uses both of those things to refine us. Sometimes he uses our own choices. We reap what we sow. It's our own stupidity that dooms us. Einstein's definition of stupidity is that it's people doing the same thing over again, expecting different results. He even allows Satan to persecute us. In the Old Testament, there is Job. In the New Testament, there is Peter. And this verse in Luke 22. Simon Peter, Satan has asked me to allow him to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed that your faith would not fail you. To reach righteousness, we need to be housebroken. So the Holy Spirit uses all things at his disposal. Nature, the activities of others, the sifting of Satan, our own decisions, direct interventions into our lives, enlightenments, blessings, answers to prayer, the actions of others. Basically, if we believe the truth of the two testaments, the words of Jesus himself, and all the commentaries in the letters, then God is God, and nothing escapes him. And following the logic of this syllogism, if God is God, and he is in control of everything, and we are persecuted, then God is in charge of persecution. If we cannot say this, then God is not in control of history, and he is not in control of our lives. And what happens just happens. It's chance, and we are not subject to the directions of God, but rather the random laws of nature and our own stupidity. So, sharpening, sifting, refining, polishing, reshaping, housebreaking. This is in the manner of speaking our own personal program of persecution. Righteousness. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin, 
the definition of righteousness is very different than it has come down to us in the church. We have been told that righteousness means uprightness, adherence to the norm, conformity to doctrine, doing good. But the usage of the word in the original Hebrew was not that. The starting point in the Hebrew is the notion of God's righteousness and his nature and the way he related with the nation of Israel within the covenants. Righteousness was not a Protestant or Catholic definition that meant to be righteous, we did good things. God's righteousness was not a thing to be done. It wasn't church committees or prayer meetings or tithes or talking about God at the water cooler or wearing a seven-pound gold cross or answering every doctrinal question, whatever, or conforming to the accepted doctrines of what church we were in or obeying the Ten Commandments. God is much deeper than that. Righteousness in the Testaments, in the original, when he was speaking it to the people on the mountain, when he used that word, they understood it as a state of being. It was what God was. It was what they were. It wasn't how they dressed or what they said. In the early Catholic Church, that took the form of good works. In the Protestant church, it became associated with outward appearance, power, status, blessing. The Catholic church stagnated towards tradition and ritual. The Protestant church settled for form instead of substance. We checked off the boxes and that made us righteous. We started going through the motions of righteousness instead of being the word. Our music didn't lead us into worship of God. It became form. We sang the same songs. We did the same thing. Our preaching didn't challenge us to change. It just taught us something that we could walk away from and continue our own lives. When we walk into church, we really don't expect God to show up. Because then we have to really change. Come on, God. Can't we just keep the old definition of righteousness and just keep doing stuff? Do we really have to conform to your nature. Jesus was asking them to define themselves. He was asking them whether they were one of his by form or by substance. By substance, God's righteousness is about relationships. His relationships specifically with Israel 
but now it's our relationship with him. So in the Old Testament, he was judge and deliverer. Over and over again, God judges the people for their lack of the righteousness, and then he rewards them for returning to him. Every other chapter in the Old Testament is God whacking them and kissing them. He persecutes them, and then he restores them. I will make you blessed, he says, and you will prosper by, like the stars. I will give you the land of promise. You don't want to do that? Okay. How do you like making bricks for 400 years in Egypt? Okay, okay, okay. You're delivered. You can go to the promised land. Oh, you don't want to do that? You want to wander around in the desert for 40 years eating tofu? You really don't get conforming to my nature? Okay, try the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. All right, let's end the theoretical, the abstract. I will come to earth and show you. Matthew 22, one of the religious scholars spoke for them, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which commandment in the law, God's law is the most important? And Jesus said, love God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, but there is a second alongside it. Love others as you love yourself. So, here we have it again. God's righteousness is a state of being. Our righteousness must be the same. Righteousness in this form is not a verb. It is a noun. It is not good works that we do. It is who we are. It is having absolute faith in the workings of God, whether we view that as persecution or blessing. It is how we reflect others to Christ who is in us. Righteousness is faith in His will and obedience to wherever God will take us. So when Jesus says, Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, he is saying this. I will bless those who will go through anything with me. And when tested in this way, their love will not fail either me or the ones I have placed in their lives. They will follow the pattern of my life, which will include suffering and persecution. But they will continue to love and to be love. That's what he means when he says righteous. Kingdom. There are over a hundred references to the kingdom in the New Testament. You can group them in three ways. One is the kingdom that will come at the end. Another is the kingdom that is here now. 
And the third is the kingdom that God reigns in. The future kingdom. Luke 22. Taking the cup, he blessed it and passed it around. As for me, I shall not drink wine again until the kingdom of God arrives. The present kingdom. Luke 17. The kingdom of God does not come by counting the days on a calendar. Why? Because God's kingdom is already among you. And then we have the third kingdom. It is the kingdom in which God is the king and reigning now. What the Father does, the Son does. I am not out to get my own way, but only to carry out orders. The kingdom, righteousness, persecution, they come together in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the end. Jesus has been in the upper room. He's washed the disciples' feet. He's prayed with them. He's given them the instructions that will establish the church. He has told Judas to leave and do what he has to do. It is his last night with the followers that he has spent the last three and a half years with. And now he is leaving. He says, come with me. Let's go and pray. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. They sleep. He prays. He is not praying that the end will not come. He is not praying that God will not require his death. If you read the story of Christ, he has mentioned his death and the end of this throughout his whole ministry. What he is praying about is the manner of his death. And he says, Father, if you would take this cup from me, you can take this cup from me. Do I have to drink this cup? He goes back to the apostles. They are still sleeping. He comes back and asks again. He does not question the necessary end. This is a foregone conclusion. His question is, do I have to do it this way? And this is his final statement. Matthew 26. My father, is there another way? Can there be another way? He then left them a second time, and again he prayed, My father, if there is no other way than this, drinking this cup, I am ready. Do it your way. He has given us, through this, through the persecution, and through the, through the reliance on the will of the Father, 
the example of this beatitude. He taught us the way to live by his life. He taught us the way to the kingdom. He taught us about enduring persecution. This is the fulfillment of this beatitude and this night in the garden. The persecution is God's choice for him. The righteousness is his acceptance of the Father's will. And the result is that the kingdom is available to us. His searching prayer at Gethsemane is the same prayer we say. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How would our lives change if we really meant this? Jesus, in his night of sorrow and commitment, gives us this beatitude in real life. From Gethsemane, we see that persecution drives us deeper into God's kingdom. It refines us through it. He teaches us that God is of no importance unless he is of every importance. His love is human and divine, and our love will only be a caricature of that if we pretend and are unwilling to follow through whatever path is chosen for us. It is up to us to bring the kingdom to earth. Our lives, our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, our giving, our church, our work needs to be substance, not form. Our knowledge of God and our following of Him needs to be, must be more than what would produce an illusion of righteousness, of playing a part. It has to be more than obedience to doctrine. If it is not, then our self-assuredness will make us Pharisees and not disciples. We will live good lives that are preserved by routine. Our goodness will ignore the summons to genuine good, and we will prefer routine duty to courage and creativity. And in the end, we will be content with safe procedures and safe formulas we will know all the cliches, God bless you, praise God, and remain smug in our self-assurance of salvation. Our purity will not be an inner battle. It will not be Gethsemane. It will be an outward gesture of form. We will accept what others tell us about God. Stop growing and our God will become a myth, and we won't even know that it has happened to us. Unless we embrace the truth of Gethsemane and this beatitude that we are in the need of housebreaking 
and that his movement in our lives, sometimes painful, will yield righteousness, then our lives are form without substance. Real life is finding no contradiction between what we are doing and what we think we should do. We must learn to accept God's will as it comes to us. The saint is one who is humble, who takes life as it is and leaves the rest, accepting God on any terms he chooses to reveal himself. It is not enough to imitate the Jesus of our imagination. We need to imitate the reality. His will is not an abstraction. Bonhoeffer said that if we allow God to be God, then he appears. And it is then becomes our choice to choose his will. And in choosing, we must remember that only the lost are saved. Only the sinner is justified. And only the dead are resurrected. When I was um, finishing up my doctoral work, there was a rabbi that came in and spoke to us. And we asked him, what was the difference between the way the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, related to God? And he said, well, the Muslims, they accept everything as God's will. And Christians, they try to bend God's will to their own. And Jews, uh, we negotiate. The Arabic phrase used by Christians and Muslims in the Middle East is insallah, God willing. And I think that's the way that we should say it. God willing. If we accept our disappointments and rejections, the polishing and refinement and persecution as Jesus did, and submit to God's will in our lives, then we have the hope of righteousness. And we will have the proper motives and the peace of submission. Inshallah. God willing. Jerry Bridges in his book, In Pursuit of Holiness, described it this way. Holiness does not consist of mystic speculations or enthusiastic fervor or uncommanded austerity. It consists of thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. It is not those who profess Christ or those who do great works in his name who will see the kingdom. It is those who bend their will to God and accept all things, blessings, and persecutions as they come from his hand. If we are to make this beatitude part of our lives, then we must prefer God's will to our own. Our hope must be in what we, the heart cannot feel, or in what man has created, or what we can grasp ourselves. We must remain convinced that our lives are going the way God wants them to go. And the events and influences that come into our lives and move us along our life by purpose. Righteousness will get us the kingdom. 
And we become righteous through the refinement and polishing and trials and problems. And through them all, choosing God. Each of us is given a small piece of the world to redeem. We are given our families, our co-workers, our students. It is something that is unique to each of us. What a tragedy. If that moment that God will require of us, train us for, purpose us for, what a tragedy if that moment finds us unprepared for the work that he has given us, for the people that, in our, that are in our hands. God has not called us to be like everyone else. He has called us to be like him. And in calling us, he has led us to our own gardens sometimes and into the night. And it is in those times that we must say, God, your will. I choose you. I want your nature. I want your life. I want you. I want to measure myself against who you are. Not against what the world says. I want to be you in this world. And redeem this corner of the world that you have given me. To follow God is to risk Everything. To follow God is to find yourself in the garden at the end. And we either say, Inshallah, and we find our place and purpose with Him, or we don't. Father, I thank you for this day that you have given us. For your presence in our lives, for your leading, for your blessings, and also for the hard times that you give us that allow us to see the kingdom and to reflect on your righteousness and mold our lives to the purpose that you would have us. Lord, bless all of us today in this place. Amen.